Hello, everyone. Welcome to our Saturday afternoon broadcast. So we'll start today, I think, with a bit of quiet meditation. We can start our meditation by remembering the Buddha, remembering the Dhamma, remembering the Sangha. The Buddha was perfectly self-enlightened, someone who had understood the truth and then taught it to those who could understand. We take him as our refuge, pay homage to him and remember him as our guide. The Dhamma was rightly taught, well taught. Something you can see for yourself in the here and now, understandable by those who have wisdom. The Sangha are those people who have practiced correctly, well practiced, rightly practiced, seen the truth of the Buddha's teaching for themselves. We can continue by sending kindness and friendliness to all beings. May all beings here and elsewhere be free from suffering. May they be happy and well. May they not lose the good things that they have. We can recollect on our death, that life is uncertain, death is certain, future we don't know. We should make the most of the time that we have make the most of the present because we don't know what's going to happen in the future. When we've done these sorts of reflections, then we begin to practice in earnest, shifting our attention away from concepts, focusing on reality, starting with the stomach rising and falling. When it rises, just say rising. When it falls, falling. And then noting everything that comes up. Just reminding yourself, this is this, this is this. When you feel pain, say pain, pain. When you think, say thinking. Any liking or disliking. Feel drowsy or distracted or doubt, note all of these. Once they're gone, just go back to the stomach. So this first part would be an open meditation. You can close your eyes and meditate with us if you have questions. The open part means you can open your eyes and type the questions in. This gives our organizers a chance to 
organize the questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions in the chat. Otherwise, just close your eyes and we'll meditate together for a bit.
Okay. So you can keep med meditating. This whole session can be a open sort of meditation. We try and be mindful together during our session here. It's an opportunity for us to be reminded by each other's presence. But um, we, for questions, we're really trying to focus this session around the meditation practice. So we take first and foremost questions that are related to one's own meditation practice, related to how how we can help benefit you and your meditation practice. So we're not really interested in theoretical questions or metaphysical questions. We might address those if there are really are no, if there's really no one here interested in meditation or needing help with their meditation practice, we'll move on and talk about Buddhism, I guess. If you don't have any questions, you can just sit with me and we can be mindful together. Please try not to um conduct conversation in the in the chat um, or answer people's questions it will all be deleted i've got the, my my helpers are under strict orders to keep the chat simple if you don't have questions you don't have to go around answering other people's questions just close your eyes and be mindful together. We do have questions, Bhante. Mm. Can you talk about the dangers of conceit and spiritual practice? What is the right balance? between knowledge and overconfidence. Hmm. Well, they are kind of two different questions. There's a lot in there. Can I talk about the dangers of conceit? I don't have a lot to say about conceit. It is what it is. Um, well, the dangers anyway. I mean, conceit is estimation of oneself in comparison to others. I guess you could simplify it to just estimation of oneself, period. But it's enumerated in terms of how it relates to others. I don't think that's necessary. I think you can esteem yourself, be proud of yourself, right? Whether that's actually considered conceit or not or something else, I think it's really just the same quality of mind, right? You esteem yourself whether or not it's related to someone else. But there is a bit of a difference when you relate it to someone else, thinking you're better than someone, thinking you're inferior to them an inferiority complex, uh, even thinking you're equal to someone. 
it has to do with esteeming yourself and so they say a sotapanna can still have conceit but they are not wrong in their conceit they will not overestimate themselves thinking they're better than someone when they're worse than when they're inferior to them or that sort of thing but they can still look at themselves and compare themselves to others so we can understand that they can still esteem themselves and think I'm such a good person or I'm such a bad person or something like that. I don't have much to say about the dangers because it's quite refined. It's something that at the point where you're worrying about it, where you're actually um, addressing it, it's really just a matter of vigilance there's no grave danger the danger of speech when it feeds your greed and anger the thing about delusion is it, it uh, brings your defilements to another level if you want something but That makes, of course, the greed worse and more more dangerous. Likewise, conceit can stop you from cultivating goodness because you feel like you're inadequate. Meditators can feel like they're just not good enough to practice meditation, not uh, focused enough. They're insufficient. And it prevents them from trying. It prevents them from having the, the putting out the effort that comes from confidence and having that confidence low self-esteem high self-esteem can be dangerous if you overexert yourself believing that you're capable of more than you're capable of uh, and and that what you're doing is right because you just know what's right and you can if you overestimate yourself and believe you're you're very wise you can miss your defilements you can you can overlook them and by missing them by overlooking them you can get, get become in danger of of cultivating bad habits and potentially getting lost in in craziness if you're if you're a, a brash and bold and overconfident individual. Uh, the right balance between knowledge and overconfidence. Well, that, yeah, so that relates to overconfidence, but I mean, there's no balance. Knowledge is knowledge. Knowledge is, you never want to be at all overconfident. They're not really related. You can think you know something, but if you know it, it's not going to make you overconfident. Overconfidence means you don't know what you think you know. So how do you how do you prevent that? You don't assume that you know anything. You let the knowledge come by itself. Knowledge should be based on what you're experiencing, and you content yourself with knowledge of what you're experiencing right now 
because that prevents any kind of overconfidence. Makes you perfectly rightly confident. Any confidence relating to concepts or me, I, that sort of thing is at the very least on precarious ground, but, but it can often, of course, be widely out of touch with reality. How does one not use meditation to be more comfortable in samsara, but rather to be above and beyond it all? Hmm. Well, I don't know that they're precisely mutually exclusive. Someone who's enlightened is going to be much more comfortable in samsara than someone who is unenlightened because they're above and beyond it all. Now, it's it's important to not to be careful about things like above and beyond it all, assuming that that's somehow where you should set your sights. It's not really and it's misleading if you it can be it can mislead you into avoidance or escapism when truly being above and beyond samsara has nothing to do with escaping it or avoiding it it has to do with understanding it and and so a better way to describe what we're looking for rather than above or beyond is independent of it not dependent on anything living in the world independent. That's how the Buddha described someone who is enlightened. So the most comfortable way to live in samsara is to be independent of it, to not have any reactions to it, partialities. Then you're free and at, at perfect peace. I have relatives who have stolen my money and ruined my life and eventually future. I have turned it to alcohol for many years. Where do I go from here? Don't go anywhere. Try and be in the present. Be with your experience. Be with your experiences, your reactions to your experiences. The Buddha said, don't go back to the past. Don't worry about the future. What's in the past is gone already. The future hasn't come yet. Whatever arises in the present moment, try and see that clearly. Be vigilant about the mind that goes to... This is me speaking now. Be vigilant about the mind that goes back to the past, to the future. It's easy to uh, get sucked in and not realize that you're not really present. It's not even just the past and the future, because vipassana... You can't just be in the present. You have to be with the experiences. You have to see clearly the present moment as experiences. If you haven't read our booklet, I'd recommend reading that. 
and that's not a brush off uh, read it and try and understand why it could help you that actually it, it would help you to change some of the habits that you develop over the years it's never going to be an easy road but i assume you're not expecting an easy path so don't be discouraged when it's hard or challenging it will challenge you and challenging is an important part of it don't don't dwell in concepts either like relatives money life ruined these are all just concepts future try and look at the present moment it's only seeing hearing smelling tasting feeling thinking that's your reality try and live in that and go from there and don't go anywhere just stay there try and live there is there a rational reason why feeling compassion for all forms of life is right other than doing it for your own well-being well to some extent everything we do is for our own well-being it's kind of absurd to do anything that's not for your own well-being for your own benefit well-being whatever it's all the same we we are kind to others because it makes us happy i mean you you would never be completely altruistic it doesn't make any sense i mean it it doesn't make sense because even if you are kind to others and and completely self-sacrificing it's going to have an effect on you and so depending on your quality of mind if your mind is pure helping others can't help but help you so and and or hurt you if your mind is in the wrong way if you're obsessing over helping others it will make you sick and so it actually can never be seen as the right thing to do if you hurt yourself if you stress yourself out over helping others and so on it's just wrong it's wrong because for it's wrong because it hurts you but but it's it's wrong because it's the wrong way to live if everyone lived that way everyone would be stressed out and you'd be and everyone would be hurting themselves so it doesn't solve it doesn't answer the problem of life when you hurt yourself it, it only makes sense for everyone to do what's truly in their own best interest which does involve helping each other being kind to each other of course but when your focus is on your own self-interest it does make sense it makes sense because if everyone did that everyone would be that would benefit if we taught people to benefit themselves truly benefit themselves and not mistake this greed for benefit greed and, and conceit and so on then if everyone truly benefited themselves we'd all be happy because we wouldn't hurt each other and we, we well, we'd have done what was right for us so really you, you you never really should it it doesn't make any sense to focus on other people it make it, it doesn't exactly make sense to focus on yourself either because that gets unhealthy as well it makes most sense to be mindful and understand what is the right thing to do because that benefits you and others So in fact, it may not be proper to say, look to your own benefit. Do what's right 
and be mindful in order to learn what's right because it doesn't even have reference to self or other. But it is very personal. It's, it's very much working on your own mind, but there's no reference. There's no thought, this is for me, this is for my benefit. There's just the thought of clarity and understanding what's right. After having practiced for a few months now, I seem to constantly be aware of the amount of idle chatter in my everyday thinking. Is this to be expected? Yeah, not only are you seeing the idle chatter, you're seeing a non-self. You're seeing that it's not you who's chattering. It's not a seeing per se, it's seeing, it's like seeing. It's not it's hard to, it's easy to misunderstand when we say things like this, like, oh, you have to have some insight, some thought arise in your mind. Oh, I'm seeing non-self. It's not like that. You're getting a, a sense, is how we would put it in English. You're getting a sense that reality is not under your control. Even your mind is not under your control. And this observation and this sense that you'll get changes the way you look, your, your, changes your perspective and your, the way you look at things. You'll be less inclined to, to, to expect your mind to be under your control. So it's a mistake to be upset by that or frustrated by that. You'll see how that leads to suffering when you do that. To judge yourself or to think that there's something wrong with your practice, there's not. So it is to be expected, of course, that you'll see more clearly and that you'll see what you didn't realize before that actually ah this I mean it's basically like this we we uh, we cultivate thinking we like to think we encourage it in our minds and as a result of that well this is the result endless idle chatter the mind gets habitually accustomed to thinking and so it thinks a lot. I usually sleep during meditation. How do I stay alert? How to focus more? Well, you may not be doing walking meditation. That I don't know. You're, it's hard to tell about your situation. If you haven't considered doing our at-home course, I'd recommend doing that. But one thing I will say is, if you're not doing intensive practice, it isn't so uncommon for people to fall asleep during once-a-day practice, especially if they're working. There's a lot of factors involved. Um, you should find over time, if you're practicing daily, that you'll be less prone to falling asleep during meditation. But you do what you can. Try and be more mindful during the day. Try and um, cultivate a more mindful attitude. And that will give you energy and you should be more alert. But if you fall asleep, when you wake up, just start meditating again. That's really the best you can do. I try to focus on my breath, but my attention tends to stick to the black screen of the visual sense. What should I do? So I don't know if you've read our booklet. Uh, it sounds like you might be practicing a different technique, or you might not, because we sometimes people refer to what we do as focusing on the breath, but it's not really the breath, it's the stomach. When the stomach rises, you say rising, and the stomach falls, you say falling. 
Um, but if your attention is on the visual, then note the visual. Uh, you would say seeing, seeing. That's all. Just say seeing until your mind lets go of it or it disappears. Once your mind is ready, then go back to the rising and falling. How does one become aware of the Four Noble Truths or let them guide you during meditation? So the whole practice can be described as a greater appreciation of the Four Noble Truths in one sense. Um, basically what it means is, well, the last two are the cultivation, but that cultivation lets you see that the things that you cling to are not worth clinging to. I mean, that's all you're going to see, really, based on the three characteristics. Why are the three characteristics so important? They show you that the things you cling to are not worth clinging to, and that clinging to things, desiring things, just causes you more suffering. When you want or like or dislike things. So through the practice, you'll just start to see that. You'll start to see how much stress and suffering you're causing to yourself based on your, or because of your, Desire your tanha, your your desire, your aversion, and as a result of that, seeing there will be the, the cessation of suffering. Now, this only really happens at the very end of the practice. It only, it only technically uh, becomes an, an appreciation as as the four noble truths at the last moment, when you finally get it, where you, your mind is so clear that it just, it's un, undoubtable in your mind that nothing is worth clinging to, that craving is the cause of suffering. Basically, that actually, that the things you cling to are, are, are not worth clinging to, that, that Reality is impermanent suffering and non-self, and as a result, the clinging disappears because of seeing clearly everything. Just you get a, an appreciation, a perfect appreciation that everything is just arising and ceasing. There's no benefit to clinging. They're, they're just not worth it. And in that moment, when there's that realization, that perfection of understanding. And there's the cessation of suffering because of the cessation of craving. I wouldn't worry about letting them guide you during your meditation. You should use mindfulness to guide you. Or mindfulness to carry you. The Four Noble Truths, things like that, are going to guide you, it's true but they will guide you based on your mindfulness. The more mindful you are, the more you'll incline in the right direction based on your clarity of mind and seeing things like impermanent suffering non-self. Is goodness, wholesomeness, a concept or an absolute truth? I am struggling with how to perceive the precepts. Well, the precepts aren't goodness. Um, 
goodness is a quality of, of mind states, and qualities of mind states are real. There are certain mind states that arise in reaction to experiences, and those mind states have wholesome qualities like clarity. like wisdom, basically clarity, let's just put it at that. When the mind is clear, that's the, uh, or pure. Even just a mind that is pure, but not necessarily clear in terms of seeing anything, because the mind can just be very, very focused, and that's still wholesome. Uh, it's better to have a clear mind as well, but uh, technically it doesn't, it's not necessary. Not all wholesome minds have clarity of mind, have wisdom in them. Um, but those are real. Uh, the precepts are rules. They're concepts, and they deal with concepts. They don't actually, any of them deal with real, ultimate reality. But they involve qualities of mind that are unwholesome. So killing involves unwholesome mind states. Stealing involves unwholesome mind states. Cheating involves unwholesome mind states. Lying involves unwholesome mind states. Taking drugs and alcohol doesn't actually intrinsically necessarily involve unwholesome mind states, but taking them intentionally, having the intention to take drugs and alcohol for the purpose of intoxicating the mind, that involves unwholesome mind states, which are real. The unwholesome mind states are the qualities of mind the unwholesome qualities of mind, those are real. You should perceive the precepts as fence posts. No fence posts are going to keep the keep the horses in the corral. But without the fence posts, you can't build a fence. The fence is what really keeps them in the corral. The precepts are it's kind of kind of like fence posts. Not exactly, but kind of. They they help you set up a fence. They help you know where the fence is. They give you a sense of right and wrong that allows you to build a, a good fence of actual right practice and for, uh, abstention from wrong practice i'm left-handed is it appropriate if i start the movements with my left hand or foot in prostration and walking meditation that's a strange request. I mean, being left-handed doesn't, I assume, mean that you um, have greater respect for your left hand or you esteem it more or you take as a religious duty to always use the left hand before you use the right hand. If you're using both, why did, why should you have to do left-handed? I guess the question is a bit of an idle one, probably. It's probably not something you're terribly concerned with. I hope I hope you're not feeling like your left-handed is going is to be offended or something. Obviously not. Um, so it's perhaps just an idle question of wondering whether that's the case. If you're left-handed, you should start with the left hand. But there's no reason to. Now, there's no reason to start with the right hand um, either. But but one, really one good reason, and that's that everyone starts with their right hand. And because everyone does it one way, doing it in a group becomes easier, teaching it to others becomes easier. There's never any doubt in your mind which one you should start with. If I just said start with one foot, there's a potential for some doubt. 
start with one hand. And when we say start with the right hand, we it's not that we're prejudiced or, or bigoted against left hand. It's probably just because most people are right-handed. But there's a reason for saying one and not any. We, we specify in order to... Two reasons, then. In order to prevent you from wondering or worrying about which one to start with, and also because it works better in groups. There's no profound, more profound reason than that. If I lower my dose of antipsychotic medication, then the negative symptoms of schizophrenia, no will, motivation, drive, get worse, and then I can't function, So, and it gets harder to meditate. What would be the best thing to do? So meditation is very much about confronting such states of no will, motivation, or drive. Not trying to change them. There may not be a need to change them. There can often be a misunderstanding, a, a, a wrong view of what's important. And that will start to change as you're mindful. You'll start to let go of your feeling like you have to be something or do something. Um, so when those are bad, Try and be mindful. The fact that it gets harder to meditate is not a problem. We're not looking to make meditation easy. When meditation is hard, it's only hard because we're not good at it, because we're not actually being mindful. It's only hard really because we don't like it, because we're unhappy with it. They go, what, is, what does it mean meditation is hard? It means you're not very mindful? Well, that doesn't make it hard. That just makes it unsuccessful. It's only hard because of how we judge it, because we want it to be a different way than it is. And that's not a good way of looking at it. So when you're not mindful, there's nothing you can do. Once you are mindful, aware of what your state of mind is, your state of body is, at that moment, then apply it. And then if you get lost again, well, there's nothing you can do about that. When your mind comes back, try again. Meditation, mindfulness meditation is in the moment. I commend you for trying. I don't, I can't rec recommend that people lower or, or lower their dosage or stop taking medication, but uh, if someone can do it, for, for, I guess with the help of a doctor, then I'm, I find it commendable that they're able to and brave, brave enough to. And I, I appreciate the effort. My body moves involuntarily during meditation. Head rotates, neck contracts, stretches, and I do some yoga. Why does it happen, and for how long will it happen? Are you telling me you do involuntary yoga? <laughs> That's that's a bit bizarre. I, I shouldn't laugh because it might be possible. Um, I would say it's more likely that there's a subtle mental engagement with it or encouragement of it. And I've seen this sort of thing before. I, people, it's it's a pretty, it's delusion. You get deluded into thinking that you're not 
encouraging it when you actually are. So a good thing to do in that case is to tell it to stop because that tells that sets you firmly on the side of not encouraging it. Don't get upset or angry, of course, but just tell it to stop and just go back to sitting still. If there are certain movements, you can note them, but uh, try and see where you're actually encouraging them without realizing it. For a month-long period, I was devoid of thoughts, but suddenly came back to more thoughts. Is this due to a lack of intensive practice, or is it another reason? It's probably due to a lack of intensive practice. That being said, that has nothing to do with what we do. Our, our encouragement is not, to, not ever to try and stop thinking, but to just be mindful when you are thinking. And when there is thinking, say to yourself, thinking. The real truth is what it's due to is impermanence, impermanent suffering and non-self. You thought you could stay in that state and it could be forever and you were in control. Now you realize that's not really the case. It's a good lesson. So I'd recommend if you haven't, read our booklet on how to meditate and maybe consider doing our at-home course. There should be links in the description of the video. All free. We don't charge money. Not This isn't the money. This isn't the commercial part. <laughs> There's no commercial part. As a beginner in meditation, what is the recommended amount of time to meditate for and build up to over time? Hmm. I think it, it depends on your schedule. I would say try and do an hour a day. Uh, if you if you're able to do two hours a day, but I think that's pretty fair for most people. Asking for more than that is unreasonable. But there are people who, of course, do more than that per day, not who are haven't even ordained. But working up to an hour a day, some in the morning, some in the evening. Working up to two hours a day, some in the morning, some in the evening. It's a good daily practice, I think. Of course, another part of it is trying to be mindful during your day. That's going to be equally as important. So even the hours you're not meditating, try and be mindful. If you haven't taken our at-home course, that's where I'd say to start. It's a good introduction. How can someone apply Buddhism? while also having ambitions. Hmm. Well, ambitions are, are quite contrary to the Buddhist teaching, so there's that. I don't think there's any way around that. Um... But you really, you honestly really don't have to be concerned with things like ambition. You just have to try and be mindful and see what, you, what the nature of your ambitions are. Me telling you that they're no good is not going to help you. It might give you a clue, but you got to see it for yourself. 
So start to practice mindfulness and you know, start to see what's good and what's not good, what's helpful, what's not helpful, useful, not useful, essential, unessential, important, unimportant. You'll see these things. What is meant by noting the four elements of the body in Satipatthana Sutta? So in the Satipatthana Sutta itself, the practice is a samatha practice. It's not a vipassana practice. So you're focused on concepts, the elements as conceptual as parts of the body. And that's not an, I mean, it's of course a useful practice. It's just not um, vipassana practice. So in vipassana practice, you'd be focusing on the elements as an experience. The air element is the tension in the stomach. When the stomach rises, that's the air element. There's a tension. When the stomach falls, there's a, there's a release of tension, which is also the air element. The fire element is the heat in the body and the coolness in the body. The uh, earth element is the hardness and softness that we feel against our chair and the floor and the back and so on. And the water element is the cohesion, the stickiness of things. How can you note thinking without stopping to think? I can note emotions and other states of mind, but I'm unable to hold two thoughts in my mind, noting and thinking. The thoughts dissipate. Of course, noting is a thought. It's a thought about the thought. But the idea is that it's a clear thought. The thought is devoid of any kind of judgment, right? That's the whole point. The noting is a means of reminding yourself of the nature of the experience. Whereas our minds are normally caught up in all sorts of diversification, proliferation, extrapolation. When you say to yourself, thinking... You cut all that off. Of course, you cut the thought off, but the thought was cut off already. It's just you don't continue to another iteration of the thought. Instead, you remind yourself, no, this isn't whatever it is I'm thinking about. It's just thinking. That's what's really happening here. I sometimes meditate and think back on the negative parts of my day. I struggle to overcome the negative side and be too critical of myself. Any tips? Uh, yeah. First of all, understand that thinking back on the negative parts isn't in and of itself problematic. So try and separate that from the actual negative feelings about the parts of your day. So there were no negative parts of your day. It's not possible. What happens is there are negative perceptions of something right, no doubt there are things that happen that anyone any sane person would say is a negative thing but experiencing it negatively is i mean the truth is it's not objectively negative it's just practically negative and so you react negatively it's the kind of thing that triggers a reaction an enlightened person doesn't get upset about negative things they don't perceive them as negative even though they might intellectually say yeah that's a bad thing they don't perceive it as such so they don't get upset about it uh, but normal normal people 
not only get upset about things, bad things when they happen, but later on they think back to them and get upset about them again, right? Which is just a double whammy or a triple whammy. And every time you think about it again and again, you you get a lot of bang for your buck, getting the same feeling again and again and again, which is torturous. But the experience isn't doing that. That's you reacting to it. So when they come up, it's a, actually a good opportunity for you to change the way you look at them, to re- learn to react differently. So don't try to overcome things, um, the, even the reactions to things. Don't try and stop yourself from being critical. Just try and learn about being critical, learn about negativity, try and apply mindfulness to those reactions. Because desiring to get rid of them, desiring to change them, just making one problem into two, they're already a problem. When you want to get rid of them, you're just making another problem. Until you see them clearly, they won't go away. You won't solve the problem. How do you handle rage? I mean, ideally, you don't rage. Ideally, you practice and are able to deal with it before it becomes rage. And I think eventually that's the answer. That's a good question. How do you deal with anything that's overwhelming you and making it impossible to be mindful? The best answer, I think, practically is to walk away to find a way to remove yourself uh, from the situation. That's not, I mean, that's not mindfulness, but you got to get yourself in a position where you can be mindful. So practically walk away, try and simmer down. And when it, once it's manageable again, once it's at the point where you feel like you really can be mindful, then just try to be mindful. Ultimately, you, you, you should deal with it without having to leave any situation, but it's not really possible, especially when it involves other people. You're not going to just stop raging just because you, well, without, without some good training to back it up. But yeah, the best answer is train to the point where you don't rage. Train to be mindful so that when something comes that you would react to, you have the wisdom to not be overwhelmed by it, to see it in context, in perspective, sorry, in, in perspective. I am seeing a lot of irony with my experience and thinking. Insights can cause a deep laughter when I see the irony. Is this irony another form of thinking? Um, I would say what we call irony is a, is a reaction to thinking as well. It's a a pleasant reaction, liking in a sense. So you might say liking. You like that particular thought. The, the irony isn't the liking, but when we say, oh, that's ironic, there's a kind of a, as you say, you, you sometimes laugh, but there's a pleasure involved with it. 
pleasure or pain, I suppose. I mean, there's a reaction to it. You can react. It can be a negative irony, right? Um, so yes, no, the irony is just the thought, but note the reactions as well, liking, disliking. How realistic is it for a lay person to lose attachments, or at least loosen them? It seems so hard without the structure of monastic life. Well, it's hard anyway. It's not something you should believe you're going to just easily give up. But it's not unrealistic to lose attachments. Well, that depends very much on the individual, but... That's not an easy thing, but to begin on the path and to start to loosen them up, it's not unrealistic. Find a good practice. I would happen to recommend our practice. And if you haven't done our at-home course, you could try that. But ultimately, some intensive practice is what's really going to help you. My son is five and suffers with autism. His school has introduced a meditation corner and he has asked me to set up a meditation area at home. What's the best sort of setup to have for him? Well, a simple setup. Should be, um, of course, nothing that catches his eye. Um, I mean, in our tradition, we do walking meditation as well, so room to do walking back and forth. But when you're sitting with your eyes closed, there's no other sort of setup. Don't have any auditory stimuli. Try and just keep it ordinary. The idea is to learn about yourself, not about something special or exotic. So it should be very much about your ordinary experience. It's a way of meditation. Formal meditation is a way of slowing down, not escaping, but slowing down your ordinary experience, simplifying your ordinary experience so you can begin to come to terms with it. I want to introduce Buddhism to my son, who is still very young. Where should I start? You should start, and pay close attention to this, you should start with yourself. So I don't know you, um, but quite often I find people who call themselves, who are Buddhist, who are proclaimed themselves as Buddhist, but don't have a very strong practice or understanding themselves. And here's the thing. If you become dedicated to Buddhism, like truly dedicate yourself to meditation and living the life of, of a Buddhist, I don't think this question is so hard to answer yourself. Because you're living it. And by living it, it's always with you. Everything you say to your son, how you interact with your son, that's Buddhism. Mindfulness and in interacting with people. 
I mean, it was probably not your case, but there are cases, there are problems. I, I don't know, maybe you, uh, where parents are, are, are very worried about their kids. They're worried that their kids are not going to be Buddhist or they're um, even even cruel to their children, forcing them to, to, I mean, quite often when they, people bring their kids to the temple, they're a bit, they can be a bit forceful. And that can just be a turnoff for the children who don't understand. You don't have to force your kids this or that. Make them respect. Make them bow down to the monks. Um, start with with a Buddhist attitude. Now, another thing I will say is that you are not your children. They are not you. They are not carbon copies of you or their 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 other parent. Obviously. But I think we sometimes lose sight of that fact and try to make them like us and expect them to be the way we want them to be. They are their own people, and they may turn out very bad. I doubt, doubtful if their parents are Buddhists, but they may. Ajata Satuta turned out very bad, and his father was Bimbisara, one of the greatest Buddhists in history, one of the most remarkable beings. And his son was uh, was a horrible person. Eventually, turned his life around after it was too late. But he did do some very good things at the end of his life after he'd killed his father. So, rather than being too concerned with your kids, consider your duty to them. Your duty is to provide them with an open door and a path to follow. But it doesn't go so far as to making them like Buddhism or appreciate Buddhism. That's not an easy thing to accomplish, and it depends much more on them than on you. And so the Buddha taught parents to stick to their duties with children. Your duty is you have you have uh, worldly duties to give them provide them with an education so that they can make money so they can live you know that's very worldly stuff but also be a guide to them be a teacher to them and provide them with spiritual teachings and so on but they're not your they're not actually ultimately your responsibility they are their own responsibility you just have duties towards them and and of course kindness but That only goes so far. And eventually you have to let them go and realize that everyone in this world has to find their own way. We're born alone. We die alone. It's our life, one. Okay, we've crossed the hour. There are five more questions in the top tier. Do you have the time to take them? For sure. Thank you. How do I control my emotions? Well, if I could tell you that, the world wouldn't be the way it was. Controlling emotions is not a feasible act. You can do it on the short term. In Buddhism, the goal is not to try and control your emotions. The goal is to understand your emotions, 
understand the things you're emotional about and understand the relationship between the things you're emotional about and your emotions to the point where you're no longer emotional about the things that you are now emotional about. Or the emotions that arise are positive emotions because you've come to understand the positivity of positive emotions and the negativity of, or the unwholesomeness of unwholesome emotions. So, not what I teach, not what Buddhism teaches, for in, as far as I understand Buddhism. I'd recommend, if you're interested, you could read our booklet on how to meditate. That might help you uh, come to terms with your emotions and learn to have a better relationship with them so that you don't need to try and control them. I had an experience of emptiness. There was no me, self. Is this seeing Nibbana? Probably not. I mean, you're ju these are just words, so I can't say for sure what it is you experienced. So you've described it in a few words, but probably not. If it's a this, it's not that. There's your answer. If it's a this, it's not that. It's a cryptic answer. How should you deal with peer pressure for unwholesome activities, for example, drinking alcohol? Uh, with, with mindfulness, I mean, it's meaningless. There is no pressure. Pressure is all in your mind. People putting pressure on you should just be like birds chirping in the trees. If they say it, you say hearing. If you feel stressed about it, say stress. If you're mindful, it all just washes like like water over a duck's back. I think that's a saying. I feel like there is something wrong with sharing your experiences, talking about meditation to other people, but I do it. Am I right in thinking that it's wrong? Uh, it's discouraged. The feeling you get is reasonable. Um, it it can confuse people. It can discourage them or distract them. It's best not to just talk about practice to other people. You should share your practice with your teacher and not i mean it's not like you have to be secretive about it or anything but you shouldn't be keen to share your experiences with other meditators it's not great there's various issues sometimes anxiety is more powerful than me and i feel like it is killing me I get panic attacks over and over. I just can't overcome it. Can I? No, I think overcoming it is sort of the wrong attitude to take. Uh, learn to go through it with better, with more mindfulness. Think of it like that, like you're going to go through it, but the way you go through it can be very different. Very different to the point that it's not really going through anything. 
seeing that it's more powerful than you is not such a negative thing because it's involving an understanding of non-self. You've gotten to the point where you appreciate that you are not God, even over your own mind. Uh, but what, what what's happening is you're there's an encouraging moment by moment feeding of it, and that you can change if you're more if you're mindful. Learn how to be mindful. Learn how to to remind yourself it is what it is. This is what it is. If you haven't read our booklet, read our booklet. It's uh, I would recommend it as a basic guide for helping you understand things like anxiety and panic and all of the physical i've done some videos on anxiety because i do feel that it's a really good example of uh, the complexity of these sorts of issues that it's not just about anxiety it's about the triggers which are often physical and they're mistaken for anxiety or, or seen as a problem when in fact they're just physical like you can have butterflies in your stomach and not be anxious because it was caused by the anxiety, but if you're mindful, you might still have butterflies in your stomach, but you say, oh, I'm not, I'm not actually anxious, and my heart is beating super fast, but that's because of what happened in the past. If you can start to see it like that, and you don't let them trigger more anxiety, where your heart's beating fast and you get more anxious, about that sort of thing, I've talked about it before. But ultimately, try and learn a little bit of mindfulness. I think you'll be uh, pleasantly surprised by how helpful it can be. Thank you, Bhante. That's the end of the questions we have prepared. Okay, thank you all. Thanks, Chris and Ulu, Rahid. Thank you, everyone, for your questions. Letting us, uh, taking us past the hour again. It's uh, remarkable. I always wonder if we're going to have enough questions. Some really good questions. I appreciate all of your keen interest in the Buddhist teaching and in our meditation tradition. I wish you all peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Sadhu. Sadhu.